this message, as I said, if the Lord continues to lead me and press me in this way, will be a part one and a part two. And um, I, I would call it Run Your Race. That comes from Hebrews, and I want to read you that uh, verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That'll be the focus of, of the second part of this message, run your race. And I want you to think about ahead of time, for next time that I try to finish this, uh, how you are running your race, your life. How are you living? What are you doing with it? Last night, I kept thinking about that scripture, I, I just continually, and I watched one of my favorite movies. It's The Secretariat, that Disney film. And you say, why are you missing a horse racing movie in a sermon? That, uh, I was rejoicing spiritually watching it. And there's two parts in there that really stuck out to me in the context of this message. And in the very beginning of the movie, the father tells his daughter, Honey, you run your race. And then in the end of the movie, he has dementia and can't communicate, can't remember anything, but he meets the, the horse star of the film. And he looks at him, and you can tell that he wakes up for a moment, and he tells his daughter, Honey, let him run his race. And so that is what is in my heart, what God has put there for all of you, for each and every one of us, that God intends for me to run my race. Not Brother Bobby's, not Brother Ben's, not Brother Hackett's. And He intends for you to run your race. He has a purpose and a plan for your life and a specific desire. And you're here for reasons that He has placed you in this world. And I want you to know that. But this part today will be kind of a, a reminder and an introduction. Uh, I want to ask this congregation, and anybody who listens regularly, have you noticed any themes in the last months of my preaching? Think about it for a moment. Think about if there's anything, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to just think about if there's anything that has stuck out to you if there's anything that keeps returning in the messages, anything that God keeps burdening me to preach more than once, think about what he's been telling us. Brother Peter wrote, he said, I think it's appropriate as long as I'm in this tent of flesh, this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. And I really feel a need this morning to remind us what God has been preaching to us through His Spirit. That is what the Hebrew writer was doing in that 12th chapter. He gave the whole history of the people, the faithful men and women of God. And then he said, wherefore, in light of all this, 
in response to everything that I've told you, seeing that we also are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us run our race individually. We've got a real challenge in this, this culture that we live in now where many Christian people are not only not running their race, they're not doing anything. I'm not talking about doing something religious, but I mean God has created you to run your race and you're, just, you're not even relaxing, you're just floating. It'd be different if you were sitting back in a hammock enjoying life enjoying a season of rest, but there are so many Christians in our culture that aren't relaxing and they're not working. They're in this in-between human purgatory state of misery, except it's not misery, it's apathetic misery, which is worse. Because if you're actually miserable, you change. And that's part of, part of what's in my heart. Some of the themes that run through all those messages, and I'm actually going to go through the last 25 messages I preached and just, just touch on a point from each one. That's what's, what I need to do today. But there are two main themes that I keep seeing. It is the indispensable, irreplaceable need to know God. And the second theme is the need to know yourself. So when I ask you, and when you think about it the next couple of weeks, how are you running your race? I want you to think about who God is, what He wants, and what you want, and who you are. That's what I'm asking. That's what God keeps asking us. And I, I keep asking these questions, and other preachers do too. What's the meaning of your life? What are you doing here? What do you want? This church, why are we here? We've asked that over and over. I said this a while back, what makes you want to get up in the morning? And I know that if some of us are honest, we would say nothing. I have felt that before. It's not a good place to be. What makes you happy? Do you know? Or has it been so long since you've been really happy, you can't even remember what makes you happy? There are a lot of people who claim to be God's people who that is the truth. They don't even remember what makes them happy. I know what that feels like too. We can get so blinders on, focused on what we think it is that we want God, what we think it is that God wants us to do, that we forget to even know Him. We forget to enjoy the journey. We forget to be present. What makes you happy? You know God wants you to be happy. Do you believe that? Nah, health, wealth, and prosperity. We're supposed to suffer, be miserable. No. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In the presence of God is fullness of joy. In His light we see light. The people looked into his countenance and their hearts were not ashamed. We could go on and on with examples of scriptures that tell us that we should be joyful, happy, and satisfied in the presence of God. And even in those times of spiritual heaviness for ourselves or for others' people, there's still joy. It's different than the empty happiness of the world. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. So I'm going to go through the rest of this message the last uh, messages that God has, has, has put on my heart. And let's just remember them. 
going back to, I think, April. I preached a message called, What is Preaching? And I remember saying that preaching is a pouring out of the preacher continually. First, it's pouring out before God all illusions of self-reliance and any type of control that he has being filled with God's will and purpose, not only for him, but for the people, and then pouring it out before the people. That's what real preaching is. It's not just motivational speaking. It's not just making you feel better. It's not only teaching. It should be a revelation from the heart of God. And God has given us in this congregation men who preach that way. Not just me. And that's not a demonstration. It's not something that we get up and um, put on. It is being filled with the presence of God and preaching and a power and demonstration of the Spirit. That is what preaching is and what God has continued to remind us. After that, I preached a message called the cross. And there was a lot in that message. It was uh, on... Um, around the resurrection that we remember, but this is what stuck out to me. The cross of Jesus Christ eliminated all possibility of self-reliance. That we might have no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul said, I don't boast in my flesh. I preached after that a message called, My Theology is a Man. In this culture of religious extremes, there are always people trying to identify what they believe, categorize it, put it in a neat little box. And when we do that, we approach one extreme or the other opposing extreme, and it's dangerous. And I wasn't trying to say that as some flippant thing, but our theology is Jesus. That's it. You don't have to have an ism after what you believe to be able to categorize it and figure out what you believe. Our preaching should be the preaching of Jesus and Him crucified, and it should be with the power of the Holy Spirit, and there is no other theology. Jesus and everything He embodies is our theology. That was the sermon on Resurrection Sundays, we remember. And I read this passage from Hebrews, I'll read it again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven or on high. Jesus is my theology. Tried to preach about religious success. We said true religious success produces a healthy root, which will in turn produce lasting spiritual fruit. This is a theme that keeps coming up in the preaching this year. I've phrased it another way. Orthodoxy produces orthopraxy. If we are really as right as we think we are, as a people, it will produce lasting spiritual fruit. If it doesn't, we need to examine whether 
we're actually right. And I mean that collectively and individually, both as churches and as saints. Individually, are you becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like yourself? Oh, that's tough. When God saves us, we are called to become more like Jesus and less like our own fleshly selves. Are we? And collectively, is your church body being rooted and grounded in love or tantalized by religious excitement and cultural religious traditions? That's what the Lord reminded us of in that message. I preached after that about spiritual sobriety. And reminded us that human beings are more than a mere mechanical apparatus. That we're more than machines. Talked about how our culture, including religion, is steeped in the superstition of materialism. Which says that on a fundamental microscopic level, on a cellular level, humans are only machines and everything we do is in response to some machine impulse inside. If you want to change the human, you change the machine impulse. And the truth is the opposite of that. We are created in the image of God with spiritual uh, aspects to us, and we have breathed into us the very life of God from His own mouth. Jesus Christ embodied that to His disciples before He went away, and He called them into their ministry, and He actually breathed on them. It was representative of God putting the life of Himself inside of us. We're not just machines. We are people created in the image of God. And part of what I talked about in that message, if, if I remember it correctly, is whether you call it the power of limiting beliefs or you call it faithlessness, when you don't believe good things can happen, they won't. There is something about really trusting God that actually changes the way your body functions. You know, I've noticed in my own life, I don't get sick unless I'm worried. I'm serious. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's not exactly the same for you. I said there's information, energy, at the very root of us not just a binary on-off switch. And part of that message was to remind us to renew our minds. Why? That we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I preached about spiritual captivity. Use this verse. That they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And I remember that message God been putting in my heart to remind us that sometimes, all of us at different times, and some of us maybe at all times, are spiritual slaves and we don't even realize it. That Satan wants to take you captive in three different ways. Eternally, he wants your soul. And if you haven't found peace with God yet, he is trying to convince you not to surrender your life to God. And even after you know the Lord, He wants to take you captive in tangible ways. Physically, and emotionally, and mentally. 
He wants your mind to be so consumed with the worries of this life that you can't have peace, joy, or happiness in the moment. He wants your body to be so riddled with worry and other things that you just hurt all the time. I have a lot of physical pain in my life. Y'all know that, but do you know the pain level is almost gone when I'm not worrying? It's amazing. Worry, worry. This is a side note that I just, just thought of now. Worry, you know what it is? It's a distortion of the reality God wants us to experience. It is us trying to take responsibility for things that aren't our responsibility. That's what it is. And the enemy will use that to affect you even physically. He also wants to take us captive abstractly. And I mean in those ways, funny, I just preached on this. God is not the God of what if. He's the God of if. He's the God of conditional promises, not what if future worry. And that was one of the things I talked about. You know what else I said in that? The enemy wants to take you captive abstractly. I said, what do you want? It's one of the themes that keeps coming up in these messages. What do you want? I preached about the personal cost of freedom. And in that message again, we were asked, what do you want? What do you want out of life? What do you want from God? Jesus tells us plainly that he will give us the desires of our hearts. And our culture, the religious culture we're steeped in now, makes us afraid to ask God for things we really want because we have a distorted idea of what humility and uh, satisfaction is. What do you really want? Ask God for it. If it's not right, either he won't give it to you or he will give it to you and you'll see you didn't need it anyway and you'll go back to him for more of him. Don't be afraid for God to bless you. Ask him for what you want. In that message, which uh, for me was one of the most important messages that I've heard this year, I said, there's a personal cost to freedom. And that cost is that you have to sacrifice your illusion of control of your own life. You can never be completely and truly free with God or with your own self in the moment until you let go of the illusion that you have any control over anything. Even yourself. Jesus paid the cost of atonement but there's still a cost we have to pay for freedom, which is surrender. Unconditional surrender. I preached about the seasons of life and said that Solomon long ago recognized that there's no such thing as utopia. <laughs> utopia is perfection on earth. He tried to find it. And most of the thinkers and academics and scholars throughout history have been trying to come up with some abstract utopia we can all reach. That's true. Utopia, listen, presupposes the possibility of perpetual sameness. Utopia, the things are always the same. That's the opposite of what God wants. God has allowed us in this life, seasons of life, to break up the monotony of the human existence. How many of you would want to be elated all the time? Could your heart even handle it? Or that state of being in love, 
Could your, I'm talking about your physical heart. Could it even put up with that kind of continual excitement without any relief? It can't stand it. Well, how many of you would want to be sad all the time? No, you end up dying. Literally. So there's seasons within our own selves. There's seasons in nature God has shown us. As much as I like hot weather, I like snow. If I have my choice, it could be 100 degrees, humidity, 362 days a year, and snow the other three. And Brother Ben would only be my friend on those three days. In that message, we were reminded that you can't make a positive from a negative. You can't have a life or a religion or a philosophy built on the absence of things. And when we try to avoid natural seasons of life, both individually or or in our culture or in nature, when we try to avoid those natural seasons, we're trying to establish a life philosophy on the absence of things. God wants you to have seasons. You won't always be as happy. You won't always be as sad. You won't always be working as hard. You won't always rest as much. There's supposed to be seasons. The Christian experience is supposed to be one of fullness, not absence. There's supposed to be fullness of joy and hope and love in Jesus. And in that message, maybe one of the harder questions I asked, and I don't know, maybe some of you would still have trouble answering it. I said this, what do you like about yourself? Is that hard for you to answer? Think about it. I hope you've thought about it since then. I'm reminding you. God put it in my heart to remind you to think of, if there's not something you like about yourself, you haven't spent much time with the Lord lately. Because in His presence is fullness of joy. And in His presence, we are reminded that He doesn't look on our brokenness. He looks on us with love through the perfection of Jesus. Jesus is the filter of love that God looks at us through. And He can't see us with anything except love once we're His children. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So if you don't like yourself or you can't readily think of things, ask God what He likes about you. And then start liking those things about yourself. I preached a message called Safe in Me. And I said, do you want the rest of God more than you want to maintain personal control? Do you want to manage your future, do damage control, and plan for all the unseen possibilities, or do you want to be safe in God's hands? And there's a big difference. You know when I feel overextended, exhausted emotionally, like I'm too busy for everything, is when in my own head I'm doing damage control for a future that hasn't even arrived, and maybe all the possibilities I'm trying to do damage control for aren't even going to happen anyway. You you ever have conversations with people before you have it, and they're, they're fast, and I don't know, like 10 times speed in my head, so it's more efficient. <laughs> and run through all the scenarios, 100 different ones. I did that recently. And then when you have the real conversation, it's much better, easier, and none of the scenarios you used were even covered. <laughs> so we can constantly try to manage the tiny aspects of our life, or we can be in God's hands, safe. It's up to you. In the next message, I said, do you really trust God? What was the title? Do you really trust God? In the scripture, he is the health of my countenance. 
Not only does he put a smile on my face, which is how we think of that verse, but there is actually a calm and a peace that passes all understanding that affects your health when you trust God. God's people, if we surrender our lives to him, should be in general. Now, there's exceptions and there's seasons where it's not true. There's seasons where some people are martyrs. But anybody who tries to be a martyr is not a real martyr. So stop trying to suffer, stop trying to be miserable, stop trying to not be blessed so that you can be a better Christian. I hope that doesn't affect people in this room, but it does a lot of religious people. But God's people should be actually beautiful. Some of the healthiest and happiest people around. We should be. He gives us all the answers to life in this book. And not only that, He gives us the fountain of life through His Holy Spirit to renew us. I said in that message, unbelief or faithlessness, it's the same thing, affects your body. Your stomach in knots, shaky nerves, shoulders tight, face all drawn up into an anxious scowl. Have you ever experienced any of that? We're so steeped in this idea in religion that I've had multiple preachers say, as if it's a truth, if you're not nervous, then you're not ready to preach. What in the world? As if the mark of being where God wants you to be is anxious. Scripture teaches the opposite. And at the expense of possibly people misunderstanding me and thinking I'm arrogant, I'll say, I don't remember the last time I was nervous to preach. That's silly. If you're nervous, you're thinking about yourself. We read this quote in that message, and I think it really ties in. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy this desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go, snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. That's straight from Scripture. That quote is from C.S. Lewis. But it is all through Scripture, the idea that we were made for another world. Peter said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims that you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That word that's translated is one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship. No wonder you don't feel at home in the world. No wonder, no job promotion, no uh, fulfillment with family, nothing can ever fully satisfy you. I talked to one of my dear brothers recently. He's got a beautiful family, but in life feels dissatisfied and uh, (laughs) miserable, actually. And I told him, I said, you know, it's good for me to know that even your family can't fulfill completely that desire. 
Because a single person, we can elevate to an idolatrous level the idea of marriage or children as if I'm going to be full. No, even that. Because you were made for another country. I preached about the mission of the church in the 21st century. That message was the anchor boat sermon. If you haven't listened to that lately, listen to it again. I preached things in that message that I didn't even know I was preaching. And that's not about me, but it was almost prophetic. Listen to it again if you haven't. One of the things that we ask in that message is, are you ready to be poured out before God? Do you you want that? And I said the reward is in the process, not only in the results. There's a reward in enjoying the labor of the moment, especially if that labor is for the advancement of the Lord's kingdom. I preached about being alone in the silence. And that he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Preached about the purifying power of affliction. And tried to remind us. I think it might have been the first time I learned it. I mean, on a deep spiritual level. That temptation, affliction, suffering in this life is not necessarily a response to something wrong with you. It might just be a season that is giving you an opportunity to know God and to glorify Him in a way that you couldn't otherwise. Don't be afraid of temptation or affliction. Be very careful about how you respond to it. I said seasons of difficulty and trial are an opportunity to glorify God in our own weakness. tried to preach after that about a biblical perspective of patience and activity. And I don't know how that message, if, if it came across the way what was in my heart, but to try to help us know ourselves better and to try to identify what kind of person you tend to be, whether you tend to be frenetic and overactive or whether you tend to be apathetic and overresting. And when you identify those things, you can figure out what you need to lay down before the Lord. Some of us need to relax more. Some of us need to care more. And that God can show you. That's what that message was about. Try to preach about the Father of Lights. And said, Jesus the Son is the self-emitting, eternal luminescence of heaven and earth. Isn't that beautiful? He actually glows the radiance of God. He doesn't just reflect it. And reminded us that we are the light of the world. Try to preach about the successful Christian. Not just religious success, but the successful person of God. This was the message you might remember where I talked about standing in a riverbed and seeing all these ruts that you never see under the surface of the water until the water's gone and reminding us that we all have ruts in our life that we might not even be aware of under the busyness of the water of human existence. Sometimes you have to strip all the noise away, the waterfall sounds, the rushing water to see what's underneath. When you do, you'll find out if you're in any ruts. Whatever you'll seek, you'll find. Whatever you focus on, you will become. Do you believe that? Yes. I believe it with my whole life. Whatever you focus on, you'll become. John Wooden, I, I quoted him. He was the famed basketball coach at UCLA. And he said, success... This is how he defined it. It's peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. 
That's a good definition. Individually, how do you know if you're successful? If you're doing the absolute best you can for God. I don't mean for Him in some kind of religious castle way. I mean, He's put you in this life to do something. Are you doing it? And are you happy with it? And I said this, if you're in a rut, what fear is keeping you from coming out of the rut? Sometimes it's just the fear of the unknown. I'll go through the rest of these a little bit faster. It won't be that much longer, but I want you to keep listening, please. I preached about the law of the harvest and quoted the scriptures that say, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's a biblical truth that for some reason contemporary religious people that, that we're around want to completely throw away. And it is called the law of the harvest. You get what you give. You will reap what you sow. You get back what you put in. And it applies to ch- church. It applies to life. It's an undeniable truth. It's all through Scripture. I preached a message called The Love of Christ Controls Me. And said we must. That word control is is held together, propelled, move forward. It's this idea of, oh, this constraining power upon my life. Almost as if I'm a slave to it. I said we must be held together, motivated, and propelled by an all-consuming, self-transcending love for and from our Father. If that's not what motivates you to serve God, you're missing out. It's true. I said, if there's room for impatience, frustration, critical feelings, self-superior thoughts, anger, bitterness, strife, envy, or any of those kind of feelings, you are not yet hungry enough for God. Does the love of Christ control you? Why do you want to do what you want to do for church or family or self? Is it ultimately because you love and want to be in the presence of your Father, or is it for some other reason? What motivates you? And in that message, we said, what would Jesus have me do? Not just this abstract, oh, what do you want me to do? Or what should I do? Or what would Jesus... Jesus, what do you want me to do? You know what I've prayed, I think, more than anything else lately. I pray it just like this. What do you think, Lord? About lots of things. What What do you think? Sometimes He shows me, sometimes He doesn't. The times he doesn't, maybe I have the freedom to do whatever I want. What motivates you? I preached about the presence of God and his perpetual covenant with man. This was the message I tried to preach at that um, fellowship meeting at, at Longview. Or not Longview, at West End. And um, this is a theme that stayed in my heart and mind. Before that and after that, Moses up on the mountain saying, God, you've offered me your blessings, but I don't want your blessings without your presence. And I'm not going anywhere. Bless me or not, I'm not going anywhere if your presence doesn't go with me. I feel that's been a a defining uh, conviction in my life lately. 
I don't want anything else. Everything else is empty. Preached about the letter of the law and the motivation of the heart. Once again, what motivates you to do what you do religiously? Why do you go to church? Why do you study the Bible if you ever do? Why do you pray if, if you ever do? Why do you do these things? What is it? We're told in Scripture, I desire steadfast love or loyalty or mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is more interested in you knowing Him than He is in getting a religious activity from you. He already has everything He needs. He doesn't lack resources, spiritual or tangible. If He could send His angel to kill thousands and thousands of people and protect the people of God, He has sufficient power to accomplish His purpose. You don't have to contribute to that. When you know Him, though, you will contribute to it because it will be from an outpouring of a motivation of knowing Him. After that, <clears throat> preached a message called, Are You Listening? That was about Moses again. And how Moses spent 40 years being trained in the ways of Egyptian royalty. Then he spent 40 years being trained in practical common sense and in spiritual truths by his father-in-law. And then he's wandering around, apparently, well, I don't know what he was doing, but he's out taking care of the sheep, and he sees this burning bush. And God speaks to him out of it. And I said, are you listening? Would you, is your life, does it have enough seasons of quietness and slowness that you could even notice something like that? How many times in our lives do we drive, run, hurry right past a burning bush where God's trying to tell us something? Are you listening? What is God trying to tell you? And would you even be able to hear it? After that, I preached a message called Forward into the Future. And that was a great burden the Lord gave me about the future of His congregations in this um, age in which we live. And a theme that has recurred is this. We don't need better methods. We need better men. We need the change of heart that precedes the change of method. That's what that message was about. And again, it gets back to this idea of how are you living? Who are you? What are you doing? Just a few more. Preached about the preservative power and purpose of God. And that message was different. I never heard a preacher tell the congregation that they're supposed to be preservatives. But that's what the message was about. We're supposed to preserve the people around us. Preached about, and this was just a couple of Sundays ago, one of my favorite messages God has given me. He said, well, you shouldn't say something like that. Why not? I have favorite sermons I've preached. They're from God. I don't invent them. 
There are things that stir my heart more than others. There are times that He overwhelms me with His love and His grace and His passion for us more than others. And that message was one of them. The power of the Spirit and the ministry of beholding the face of Jesus Christ was saying and reminding us that God's people have to be empowered by His Spirit or we're not going to accomplish anything. Until we get... That was the message where I talked about the two types of prayer, the public praise of God and the desperate begging Him to help our need. And how uh, those early apostles, when they came back from being in prison and their lives being jeopardized and the people went to pray, first they prayed, God, we recognize that You're the Creator of everything and nobody does anything unless You allow it. And even Herod did what You wanted him to do in killing Jesus. That's that first kind of prayer. And the second kind of prayer is now hear their threatenings, O Lord, and give boldness that we might preach Your name. There was unity. And I remember in that message talking about unity is not everybody pretending they agree about something. Unity is everybody coming together collectively and individually actually wanting the same thing as the other people. And until God's churches once again have true unity will keep floundering. In the end of that message I I tried to remind us that God, when He saves you, puts you into a lifelong ministry. Every saved person. And that ministry is to behold the face of Jesus Christ. Every religious activity, every desire, everything we want to do should come, should be produced out of alone time with Jesus out of being amazed by His presence and beholding who He is. Preached last week and along with our Lord's Supper remembrance that God is not the God of what what if. He's not the God of future abstract possibilities. He's the God of eternal conditional promises. And I want us to remember that. And... uh, The next time I try to finish this message, as I said, will be preaching, run your race. I hope you'll think about that. I hope that these uh, messages, that the reminders have stirred us up, put us in remembrance of what God has done for us and what He wants to continue to do. I don't believe the preaching of the gospel falls without effect. Not true preaching. There's a reason we've heard all these messages and God knows what it is. It may be a different reason for each one of you. And there may be an overarching purpose collectively. I don't know. But think on these things the next couple of weeks and I want you to think about how God wants you to run your race, what your race is. What are you doing with your life? That, that'll be the last time I preach here for a while when I finish this message. And that's what's in my heart to leave you all with. Going into a new year, it'll be New Year's Eve, it, Lord willing, when I try to preach it. I want us to look back on all the things God, through His Spirit, has been preaching to us 
And I want us to look forward to what is the purpose of my life and what am I going to do with this race God has given me. So please be in prayer thinking about that. If you're listening to this recording and uh, maybe some of these things were, they seem like I'm talking to people you don't know or about things you haven't heard, you can listen to these messages. They're, they're on our sermon audio page. But most importantly, in hearing all of these things, if there has been a sense inside of you that you don't have peace, you don't have purpose, and you don't really know why you're here, you don't really know what the purpose of life is, you don't have happiness. Maybe when I said, why do you wake up in the morning? Maybe you're one of those people who says, I'd rather not. If you feel that way, you can have peace, you can have purpose, and you can have joy in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You come to Him when He deals with your heart through His Spirit, and there's a, a realization that you're not Him, and you're not God, and you need something other than yourself. And when you feel that, you go to Him in repentance and brokenness and faith. You trust Him, and He can give you peace. God bless you this morning.